hi there. Welcome to the first episode of Season of the Bitch. It's just like a regular leftist podcast, but there's no men. It's very invigorating. also wanted to clarify that our uh, podcast being called season of the bitch is not like your wet dream coming true of now being able to call people bitches um we will not even be called bitches we will be known as the coven and don't call people bitches because that's stupid and don't do it unless it's like a sex thing and your partner's cool with it (laughs) That's fine. Yeah. Barring I mean, whatever that. sex thing you're into. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like if if I'm walking down the street with my groceries and you recognize me from Twitter, please do not be like, hey, bitch, you're the bitch with the show about bitches. Boo. <laughs> that won't be tolerated. I want to let you guys know, uh, all of our listeners, that it's important that we felt like we needed to say that before we even introduced ourselves. That is how strongly we feel like this is not an excuse for you to call women or anybody else bitches. Um, On that note, we are going to go ahead and introduce ourselves. Um, I'll go ahead and start. My name is Kellen. I am a graduate student studying U.S. history, um, slavery, race, emancipation, um, all of that fun stuff. I'm based out of New York, but kind of ramble around the country quite a bit. Um, I think we're also going to do a little bit of background, kind of give you guys an idea of who we are and how we've come to be the leftist ladies that we are. For me, I grew up in a very sheltered sort of white conservative bubble. Um, Went to high school in a something of a segregation academy with a lot of white kids, bankers kids, um, and started learning about racism basically by teaching myself. It also helped that I have like a saint of a mother who is very into social justice and that sort of thing. But anyway, anti-racism kind of brought me to leftism more generally. And that's, that's where I come from and who I am. And I'm, uh, I'm Laura. I live in one of the weirdest cities in the country, which is Buffalo, New York. Um, I grew up in the woods. I'm bi. I've done a bunch of organizing work and conflict resolution work. I'm a grad student studying the shitastic reality of capitalism. And I recently caught a bat in a pot while I was dog sitting and really do consider this one of the greater achievements I've ever accomplished in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Nice. Um, so I'm Hope. I'm originally from D.C., uh, from the Washington area, and I grew up sort of being spoiled by being so involved with politics. Uh, grew up going to protests and stuff like that. Uh, my, my youth, after college, I decided to uh, move to Atlanta, where I quickly realized, in my opinion, it was not a real city, but just a bunch <laughs> of suburbs kind of duct taped together. That is so um, real. And then- <laughs> And then subsequently hightailed it to Chicago, where life seems to make sense again. Um, I'm Lindsay. I'm a first-year law student from and currently living in the Bible Belt. Um, That's as specific as I'm comfortable getting. Um, I'm queer. I'm married. I teach pole dance classes. Um, I don't know. (laughs) Kind of aesthetically and personality-wise, I straddle the line between, like, you know, crunchy and edgy, and I generally land in the vicinity of um, basic. Um, (laughs) This is the Um, Basic Bitches podcast, season of the Basic Bitches. Yeah. Only we can say that. Um, (laughs) I had a very conservative upbringing. Um, Yeah, like grew up on Rush Limbaugh. My mom has referred to me as a Rush baby before, which I considered highly insulting when she told me. Um, so when I finally went off to college, I went to a liberal arts school and just learning about all of the things that I had been taught growing up that were wrong, led me to question more and more things. And that led me to being, I don't know, the 
extremely opinionated leftist that I am at this point in my life. I feel like that's a theme in like Southern radicalization, by the way, speaking from similar, somewhat similar experience. (laughs) Ambria. Uh, My name is Ambria. (coughs) Sorry, I'm going to start that over because I coughed. (laughs) That's my introduction. Um, So once upon a time, I was a feral child in the cornfields of Illinois. Um, I escaped here to the big city in Chicago. um, And now I tweet bad jokes. I, yeah, I had a, a pretty typical uh, sort of white trashy upbringing uh, in rural Illinois. I moved to the city when I was 17. Um, I was in the ISO briefly, pretty quickly. My dad also listened to Rush Limbaugh, though my mom always said she thought he was way too mean. I don't know. I was always just kind of a, a bleeding heart. So I, I like to think that that has something to do with it. I was always kind of the girl on the playground who was like, leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Don't make fun of him. The transition from anti-bullying to anti-capitalist is real. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So to talk a little bit about how we came together to, I suppose we could probably say podcast a spell. Maybe there's some uh, puns <laughs> yes. <in> there. Um, <laughs> casting. Um, uh, basically we will just say that we were complaining about something on the internet. I'm sure everybody's shocked to hear that we were doing that <laughs> and we actually decided to do something about it IRL. Uh, and this podcast is the result of that decision. Um, we don't want to say exactly where we all met, but five, six, seven, eight. We found love in the same <laughs> That was the worst thing I've ever heard. We're never going to nail that. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> that, was, um, that was so bad. Absolutely <laughs> perfect. Uh, do, well, anyway. Do we want to try it try it again or keep it No. Moving? That was perfect. <laughs> we found love in the dankest place in case people couldn't understand what we were actually. Nobody understood. I, I think it's worth letting everyone know that in our run through of this, that Ambria <laughs> did <laughs> And she was like, one and two and uh, three. Go. And everybody was like, what? And so this was way better than that. So you're welcome. We're improving. We're improving. We're going to learn and grow through this process. I'm going to learn to count, maybe. Still catching up from my feral childhood. So we also wanted to shout out people who made $100 donations. Um, Thank you all to everyone who made donations. I know that it's certainly not in my own means to be able to donate $100 to a podcast. So, But I appreciate all of you that were able to do that. Um, And that's Catherine Biondi, Travis Noonan, Richard Azierski and Randy Cherland. If I mispronounced any of your names, you can hunt me down. Just kidding. Don't do that. Please don't. But yeah. But you can't complain about it on the internet, which is productive in our experience. And for another donation of $100, we will issue a correction. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> At this point, we're blackmailing you. Uh, we tried. That's the point. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a book called Caliban and the Witch. Do not worry if you haven't read this book. Um, It's by Sylvia Federici. And um, we're going to be talking a lot about the content in a way that I think everybody's going to be able to follow along with. Um, We chose it just because it really expresses why feminism is essential to anti-capitalism. And uh, we thought that topic was really fitting for our first episode. Um, But in the spirit of making it so that everyone can really follow along, I'm just going to do a rundown of the major points that are made in the book. So economic exploitation of women, according to Sylvia Federici, is not a holdover from feudalism or any other, air quotes, primitive cultures. And that's been a common Marxist theory that the oppression of women is kind of a, a holdover from from something older. But Federici says that it's actually been used within 
imperialist cultures and then also forced on other cultures for colonial conquest and to aid with the system of slavery. And even though throughout history, women have usually been subordinated in various ways, uh, Federici insists that culturally defined roles are not the same as economic control over women's reproductive labor. What reproductive labor is, is all of the labor that's necessary in the home that we need to keep us living, able to go out into the world and work. That includes eating, sleeping, housework, giving birth, parenting, lots of other things. Um, and Federici shows the ways that capitalism made this labor the private woman's responsibility, which is essential for creating profit in the broader economy, even though it happens in the home, thanks to private property. Boo. Um, <laughs> boo. <laughs> Um, and this creation did something she calls naturalizing. So that means it seems like gender relations in the home aren't really connected to or at all shaped by the economic system, even though they were created in service of capitalism and forcibly implemented. The book Caliban and the Witch actually chronicles the ways women and people in general struggled against capitalism's new rules. Um, and in her framework, capitalism wasn't the natural next step after feudalism, was never accepted by the workers. It was actually the elite finding a way to retain their power at any cost as feudalism crumbled and women and men revolted against exploitation. So that's the broad strokes of what this book is about. Um, and now my co-hosts and I are going to um, have a conversation about a few specific themes. One, the devaluation of women's labor. Two, reproductive control. And three, the oppression of women as a tool for slavery and colonialism. I just wanted to say really quickly that the fact that she even suggests that capitalism was not the next natural step is like, boom, massive critique on Marxism. And I'm just fucking stoked on that. I mean, like, love Marx. Shout out to Marx. But like, damn, was so mm-hmm. pumped when I read that. Anyway, it's a major critique. It's it's within the Marxist tradition. It's a continuation of it. Um, but uh it's definitely a critique of how Marx talked about women's oppression. Yeah, it's definitely providing a different lens through which to view the principles that he, um, I don't know, an amendment maybe? Yeah. Yes. Um, so first off, we're going to talk about the devaluation of women's labor, which I think a lot of us are really familiar with the issues of what types of work are seen as women's work in the home, but also in the marketplace, right? Uh, elderly care, child care, you know, housekeeping, house cleaning, all those things are sort of seen as women's work. And so we're going to kind of talk about how that happened and why work in the home is considered something that the woman does that is unpaid. Totally. And I think Mm -hmm. like even even thinking about the types of occupation that that are quote unquote, typically women's fields, like you were just suggesting, like all these caretaking fields. It not only like hurts women, but it obviously creates this like weird gendered dynamic throughout our society, which is just fucking toxic to everyone. Um, and it's super dumb. Um, I I really liked that. So in this section, like, I really liked that she she pulls on how families weren't this like locus of society forever. You know, that was something that changed throughout history. And it was after women were pushed into the home and were pushed into this very specific role, being a productor, like someone who's producing labor power and that being their sole purpose in life and that being like somehow natural. And she also talks about, uh, Federici talks about how during the implementation of the new capitalist system in Europe, even work that women did in the home that was part of production, such as helping their husbands finish sewing work for clothes to sell, that was still considered women's work. It was part of helping your husband be a producer. I think that we had also sort of wanted to talk about how this leads to women, how women are perceived in the workplace on Um, sort of a meta level as a labor force outside of the home as well. And and maybe the connections that can be drawn between that issue and uh, the rhetoric on immigration, if somebody wanted to pick that up. Um, Yeah, there's a part in the book where Federici is talking about how women were sort of driven out of the workplace after this cultural and economic shift 
that was due to a change in how the state operated. But then uh, various craftsmen started organizing to push women out um, because women's labor became cheaper, um, which wasn't always the case under feudalism. And they felt that the situation, the, the men felt that the situation was driving their wages down. Um, so they wanted to expel women from the workplace. And I think that this is really... It's something that reminds you of the narratives around immigration and labor. You know, we have to get rid of immigrants because um, allegedly they are driving, they are driving down wages. And um, when we discussed this before we recorded the show, Kellen noted that like when I was talking about it, I simply said that women and immigrants drive down the wages. And she had a really good critique of that kind of language, which we use all too easily. Do you want to talk about that, Kelly? Yeah, for sure. So um, anybody that knows me probably knows that I I border on, you know, idolization of Barbara Fields. Um, and one of the things the Field <laughs> sisters are really into is language. Um, and I, I try to focus on that kind of thing in my work as well. And in their book, Racecraft, this is only the first book that I'm going to plug in our first episode. There's more coming. They talk about the power of language um, to disguise the perpetrators of injustice in, in various ways. And I think that we can kind of take that idea and shift it over to think about these sorts of things as well, because it's not that women or, you know, immigrants have the ability or really the power, power is what we're talking about fundamentally here, to drive down wages. Um, women and, and immigrants couldn't drive down wages if they wanted to, if they tried. They're used as an excuse by capitalists for lowering wages. That, that competition, quote unquote competition, allows capitalists to make that conscious decision to pay less, to pay less than a working um, day's wage, to pay less than a living wage. And so something that I think it's really important for people on the left to think about, you know, as we're having these conversations is even the kinds of words that we're using and, you know, as simple as the noun and the verb that follows it. It's not women who are driving down wages. It's not immigrants driving down wages. It's these uh, minority groups being used sort of as scapegoats to explain the oppression that occurs and that, you know, targets everybody under capitalism. Um, and these, totally. you know, dis- <laughs> these distinctions, <laughs> these distinctions yeah. only serve to alienate, further alienate different members of the working class, you know, and divide us. And it just like puts bigger profits into the capitalist class. Right, right. And and conveniently, though, suggests that we should be blaming some of the most powerless people in our society for the oppression of only slightly less powerless people. For fucking sure. For mm-hmm. fucking sure. So I guess what is the argument that capitalists or that like employers use to set lower wages for women and immigrants and um, other people of color? Is it essentially like, if it's easy enough that a woman could do it, then it's, it can't possibly be skilled work? Or, um, oh, man. I'm just, I'm curious as to like, why. I don't even, <laughs> I don't think historically they've even had to really make an argument. Mm-hmm. It's always just kind of been accepted as the way it totally. is. Totally. And I think there's some other mechanisms in place under capitalism, like not having transparency about what people make um, and, you know, busting up any kind of organizing attempts that make it really hard for people to prove that it's a, a systemic problem. So something that Federici talks about is, once again, this this thing about naturalization. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's about, you know, suggesting that women are only good at things because it comes naturally to them. Um, and for her, you know, she sort of argues that that this isn't how it always was, that, you know, forcing women into these roles took a lot of strife and violence. She talks in this book a lot about revolts uh, carried out by women in medieval Europe. Um, she talks a lot about people resisting these structures, workers in general, but women especially, you know, rioting, fighting against these things, becoming vagrants and wandering the countryside while capitalist systems wanted them to stay put so that their labor could be exploited efficiently. And so I think like when you say that, you know, women are good at certain things, what you're saying is that they're naturally good at them 
Um, and that's why they put less value on that skill because it's it's got this sort of made up biological function and therefore it, it's not a skill that she developed, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. totally. And I would argue that a lot of the, the skills that women allegedly have naturally are just socialized. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for generally speaking childbirth. I know that like people who aren't women can have children too, but like that's the only one that I would consider largely a biological skill that women naturally tend to possess. Uh, yeah, like, ugh, women aren't naturally nurturing. We're just expected to be nurturing from a young age. Like, we're not naturally cleaner. We're just expected to clean up after people from a young age. Like, yes. ugh, Jesus, just, ugh. <laughs> I think there's a layer of this also, though, that's like these things keep getting added to what like household responsibilities are, which I think is also a function of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, you know, people need to feed themselves. Yes, they need to have shelter. Yes, they need to caretake members of, you know, whatever the group is that can't take care of themselves. But things like you know, taking the kids to soccer practice or how clean you keep your house. Like these are all ways that, you know, women are evaluated on how they're a parent and how they're supporting their family. And, you know, they're not like necessities. Should we go ahead and move on to like reproductive control um, in Caliban and the Witch? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I actually found a quote or a section that was kind of, I thought, a good segue from the devaluation of women's work uh, into reproductive reproductive control. There was a point after, like, well, let's see. I'm trying to figure out whether I should read the whole thing. Nah, I won't. Um, But basically, uh, what it's saying is that when uh, the church and the government decided to enforce more reproductive control they had to do that um, in part by essentially kicking women out of the delivery room like typically historically childbirth had been a very social experience like entire communities of women would would join together to support the new mother as she gave birth and of course a midwife was central to that but when women could no longer afford to give birth and when people you know, the people in positions of authority were trying to enforce population growth um, and thereby control women's reproduction. Um, midwives had to start essentially like narking on their uh, their patients because mm. if any infant died within like eight days of being born, I don't know if it was eight days or just before like christening or something, um, then the mother was suspected of infanticide and could be beheaded. Um, if any also infants some were found, up bullshit, right? <laughs> this is um, some bullshit. Yeah, like if any infants were found on the steps of a church, you know, just given up, abandoned, um, then the midwives would have to inspect the local women for signs of lactation to see if they had given birth and given up a baby. Uh, excuse um, me, miss. Can I just check out your boobs, please? Like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Quick squeeze. Um, oh, very. Very well, then, if it's for the good of the community. (laughs) There was one other thing that I thought was interesting. They had to, like, basically perform, like, really invasive inspections on any women that they had suspected of recently giving birth, um, whether or not there was a baby discovered. Jesus Um, fucking Christ. Yeah, so that, of course, created tensions between midwives and the people they were supposed to be helping, which, you know, delegitimized an ancient you know, trade for women, an ancient, like, profession for women, and uh, kind of led to the rise of male obstetricians in the delivery room. Totally. Um, I also feel like this was, like, the same time, like, Federici talked about how it was after the plague, and they were like, oh, everyone needs to have babies. Babies are so important because this giant plague just wiped us all out. But then it's like, okay, we're going to literally force women to have shit tons of babies, and, like, if you weren't just like, okay. They were like, mm-hmm. you're a witch. And that's when witches were like the yeah. fucking dopest. And they were like the people that had control over their own reproduction or at least like questioned that process at all. I loved, she said on the book, she said, it can't be a pure coincidence 
that at the very moment when population was declining and an ideology was forming that stressed the centrality of labor and economic life, severe penalties were introduced in the legal codes of Europe to punish women guilty of reproductive crimes. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Yeah, I think we should mention, like, in the 16th and the 17th century, there was a really popular ideology, you know, during the early life of capitalism called mercantilism. And this basically was that the bigger the population of your nation, um, of your market, uh, the stronger it's going to be, the wealthier your market is going to be. Um, That's since been, you know, basically refuted completely. And now there's actually been sort of the reverse. A lot of times there's population control, but women are still controlled through reproductive constraints or the expectation to reproduce. But during that time, these laws were often like the major reason that women were punished because during this time also, women usually weren't considered, especially like in England and France, legal entities of their own Mm -hmm. they were sort of paired up with their husbands or whoever you know maybe a father a brother if if all the other men are dead um and this was actually when all the other men are dead just kidding for those of you looking for uh the legal term that's coverture not the lawyer in this group but wanted to drop that little fact Nice. Um, except except <laughs> in the case of like natal crimes of uh, being suspected of infanticide. And often you did not if your baby died, you did not have to even be found guilty of infanticide um, and you could be put to death. Where's I'm, I'm trying to find the part. Fantasize. Oh, here we go. Infanticide. More women were executed for infanticide in the 16th and 17th century Europe than for any other crime except for witchcraft, a charge that also centered on the killing of children and other violations of reproductive norms. So for the most part, women could not be persecuted of crimes, you know, not being legal entities, except for crimes uh, involving childbirth. Yeah, dude. I really, I think that speaks to... The way that women were valued, you know, exclusively basically as as reproductive units, which I think dovetails nicely with the conversation that we wanted to have about slavery and colonialism, particularly. Does anybody want to jump in before I get into that? I was just going to say really quickly that this is why it's really wild that Marx, that he didn't think about reproductive labor as anything other than natural and he didn't think about it in terms of any sort of burden and I think like everything we just talked about is really indicative of why that's problematic. Can I go on a quick tangent about witchcraft and like reproductive control? Okay um that I just remembered this I read this book a long time ago this story it was um written in Spanish and in like the 14 or 1500s I think And it was about this witch, but of course it talked about some actual practices of witches at the time. And a lot of times witches or people who are called witches were people who would allow or help women get away with like quote unquote sexual deviance, like having sex outside of marriage or getting abortions. Like there are of course natural abortifacients and you know, the alleged witches would be people who would help women terminate pregnancies that they did not want to or could not carry. Um, But something else that they did at the time was come up with this way for women to hide the fact that they had had sex before marriage. And they would do this Mm. by like making these little, I guess, pouches of I think like lamb skin or something filled with like lamb's blood that would be inserted into a woman's vagina so that when she had sex on her wedding night, she would bleed and her new husband would think that she was a virgin. <laughs> Which Yo, is like horrifying, we're gonna have a whole fucking also... episode on the hymen also. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm cackling over here, y'all. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, so yeah, witches, uh, witches were complicit in some uh, quote-unquote reproductive crimes so i think that might have something to do with the fact that they were also prosecuted um as harshly and also the reason why we all identify as witches right i'm just (laughs) not the reproductive crime thing all of our reproductive shit like what is a reproductive crime but like i mean like i've committed some light infanticide (laughs) i mean who hasn't fornicated a time or two (laughs) that's right 
us. <laughs> Y'all are learning a lot more about us than you wanted to coming into this. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so, yeah, by the way, this, I don't know, reading about this, like when I first read it, it really impacted me. I, you know, obviously I was already pro-choice, but just seeing how intimately uh, women having control over their reproduction is related to an oppressive economic system was really important for me in the way I, that I think about uh, abortion rights for women and also rights for birth control. You know, we had, I think, in Missouri where there was the attempt to pass the law where women could be discriminated against for taking birth control um, or having an abortion. Um, and, and that just goes, I mean, even further than the abortion thing, you're not even allowed to prevent pregnancy at this point. Or like help yourself. I have endometriosis, which shout out to y'all endometriosis folks. That's like literally TMI, don't care. Your menstruation goes out through your fallopian tubes and creates lesions all over your reproductive system and other nice. systems that are inside your stomach. And if you're not on a birth control that like stops your menstruation, that shit's going to happen. So no thank you. Like, fuck that shit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Word. So um, I think we're going to talk about slavery now um, and the way that these questions about women's reproduction become especially important in that context. So obviously when we're talking about slavery and and i'm particularly interested in talking about slavery in um what becomes the united states when we're talking about that chattel slavery women's reproduction becomes not just an issue of labor power and the creation of labor power but an issue of the creation of property as well and so the degree to which you know slavery and the slave system is part is capitalist or isn't capitalist uh, maybe is something we can talk about in another episode but what we want to focus on today in thinking about caliban and the witch is uh the ways in which gender oppression are intimately leaked to the creation of uh the slave system in again what would become the united states so this gets a little bit of coverage in the book that we've been talking about but i i think that there's definitely a blind spot when it comes to thinking about the experiences of women who are outside of Europe and then also sort of outside of the European colonial sphere. So something that I think is really interesting when we're talking about all of these things is the way that women's labor is especially important in the construction of racial chattel slavery. So for those people out there who are not obsessive, you know, history nerds like myself, you're probably not super up to date on the debates over, you know, what came first, racism or slavery, right? And historians who use Marxist analysis say, obviously, slavery predates racism. You know, people don't, racism is is a... Uh, a means to justify an economic system of exploitation. And the there's evidence for this in the historical record, and it depends a lot on the interpretation of gender roles. So I'm going to pitch my second book in this podcast, um, <laughs> and I'm going to shout out to the historians that I'm talking about. If you guys, you know, get a bump in royalties, Give me a cut, you know, maybe. Kathy Brown, she's a, pen. she's a great lady. She wrote a wonderful book that is aptly titled Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs. And uh, she, you guys can probably guess which, uh, which category those of us on this podcast fit into. But she kind of blew the lid open on this thing. I'm a good wife. <laughs> There are a few of us who are wives uh, in this podcast, but I'm not sure that any of us would qualify as good in the in the uh, colonial sense. At any rate, yeah, no. <laughs> she <laughs> she goes back to um, look at the uh, legislature in Virginia in the 1660s, right? Which maybe like some of you guys listening are like, oh my god, this is the most boring thing that I could possibly be hearing about right now. But I promise you, it's interesting. So. <laughs> The, the tax structure that was set up in colonial Virginia taxed men as laborers, right? Which, again, given what we've talked about, about the way that women's labor is devalued, probably isn't surprising, right? So in a household, 
men above a certain age are taxed as laborers by, you know, this nascent state. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you are an African laborer or an Anglo laborer, if you're a man, you're taxed the same way, right? So what's interesting is in 1668, way back in the day, the Virginia legislature passed this, like, formerly obscure law that changed this rule and taxed women who were African in the same way that it taxed men. And the reason that this is significant is because, like, during this time, you know, women are working. There are indentured servants who are coming over from Europe who are, you know, quote-unquote white, who are there specifically to perform labor for wealthier households, right? And those people are not being taxed as laborers. But African women in 1668 and onward are taxed in the same way as men. And Kathy Brown says that this is a really, really important point in history because that's the point at which you see the labor of black women being differentiated from the labor of white women and black or African becoming this very important category that is differentiated that says this kind of work that these people are doing is different. And this is happening, you know, as the, the definition of slavery, you, whether um, it's going to be an institution that's passed down to children, whether it's specifically, you know, something that only people from Africa can experience. All of that is sort of up for debate. But this this question of women's labor and how it is differential between black women and Euro descendant women is sort of the point that uh, Dr. Brown suggests we can look to, to see that slavery and chattel slavery, as we understand it, becomes institutionalized in the English colonies. And so I think this is really important for a number of reasons. Obviously, when you know we're thinking about the experiences of American slaves, it becomes crucial. But even, I think, to perhaps more to the point to the people who are not historians listening to this podcast, for people on the left, we need to take seriously the idea that questions of race and gender matter and that they structure the system of exploitation and specifically labor exploitation that we're functioning under. And so I really wanted to bring this point to light uh, in the context of this discussion of, of Caliban and the Witch because while you know it's a really great book in a lot of ways, it um, doesn't touch, I, I don't think, uh, in any really serious way on the way that gender is used to construct the institution of slavery in this quote-unquote new world. So that's my that's my little spiel on that. Totally. Well, and what, quickly, I just wanted to say, like, even just, like, we need to keep in mind this on the left, like, the seriousness with which gender and race play out in, like, throughout history and today. I just think, in general, people and the left and you know just people need to remember history like I someone <laughs> has a joke that's like every year slavery gets 50 years farther behind us in people's minds and it's just like no like this is our fucking lineage like my lineage as a white woman is the lineage of lynching is the lineage of all this other shit like we need to own that and understand that. I think just like a reckoning of history is so fucking important. And I'm like glad we have a resident historian on our show. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I think the the idea that like, I, I don't know, I think sometimes in leftism, it's sort of treated that we believe in feminism and anti-racism because it's the right thing to do instead of looking at the ways that, which it is, but <laughs> instead of looking at the ways that feminism and anti-racism is essentially or is essential to anti-capitalism, yes. that yeah. the, the way that we use these, the way that we construct identities and use them to exploit people is necessary for understanding how capitalism functions and how to fight it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, I think this is a really nice place to, to put a pin in it. And uh, we're going to take a break, listen to some tunes, and uh, get back to you guys soon.
Okay, cool. So the coven is back. That's right. We are the coven and not the bitches. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That song was by band Mechanical Boy. I happen to be in that band. And uh, you can find our stuff at mechanicalboy.bandcamp.com. But this is generally a call out to all women musicians, um, and non-binary people for yes. fucking sure like just people who all are non-men <laughs> non-men non <laughs> non-men shredders out there in the community we'd love to hear from you um you can email us your tracks at season of the bitch at gmail.com we want to it's actually hear from can you. i jump in here it's actually oh, season fuck. of the b at gmail.com because uh Google doesn't let you have uh, curse words in your account. (laughs) So now that we know that our country and Google is run by a bunch of Puritans, (laughs) it is seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Send us your tracks. We would love to hear from you. And you can be a shitty band like mine. Like we just recorded that in like a room in my apartment. It's great. It's totally fine. Um, So the next little topic for discussion is um, the article we had i have this it up on my phone um amber lee frost wrote this article in the rosa remix booklet um called pickup artists ashley madison and lifestyle feminism which um i don't know who picked it out but it was really good and it is a really good companion for caliban and the witch as well amber go on season of the bitch amber go on season of the bitch hashtag go on season of the bitch feel free to use that twitter's (laughs) Extremely online left. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually do search that on Twitter every now and then. <laughs> Go on at Season of the Bee. Uh, I keep looking at that for suggestions, FYI. Um, back to the article. Um, she kind of starts it off with uh, an analysis of the statement, the personal is political, which is, I don't know, I feel like everybody's heard it at this point, And it's kind of come to be known as essentially just saying everything I do is politics. Uh, which kind of leads to something of an aesthetic approach to feminism, like t-shirts that say feminists that were actually, you know, created by children in sweatshops in third world countries, and just, like, the most basic inactive activism. Um, Capitalist activism? Yeah, like consumerist activism, or I think Amber refers to it as lifestyleism in the article. But what the... you know, that quote was originally meant to be was essentially that um, politics should be engaged to effectively address personal problems. Not so much that, you know, you get to pass off everything that you do as politics. I think was thinking about how that like feeds into like the emotional, like women are emotional and like women are making this personal and about them. But it's more like, no, the political system and the economic system is directly fucking us over. And so we need to make it personal. Yeah, definitely. The other thing that I think that, you know, the personal is political represents, there's, there's a piece of that that comes from academia um, and, and history, not to be a, you know, one track kind of speaker here, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) there's the, the idea that ordinary people participated in revolutionary politics was really novel at a certain point because all of history and a lot of other disciplines too were about great white men but the idea that the way that again you know if we talked about slaves earlier that that a slave woman you know inducing an abortion that's just that's not just a personal choice not to have a child that's a political choice and so in on some level Every choice that we make, we're functioning under this system. For us, you know, it's this late capitalistic system. So on some level, all of our choices are political. But that's not an excuse to be like, I'm being political by buying the Lululemon t-shirt that says, you know, feminism on the front of it. That's that's a right. consumerist and- choice. And that's capitalist systems reappropriating this, this move towards recognizing women's oppression and taking that legitimate anger and co-opting it into supporting the system as it stands today. Just maybe, you know, giving women a slightly bigger piece of the pie. 
And it generally tends to fall on middle and upper class white women that are yes that are in that category that are like doing this specific consumerist capitalism I mean everyone is guilty of it because there is no ethical consumption under capitalism <laughs> but like we for like the that very specific like oh I'm still with her t-shirt or like Ugh. nasty woman t-shirt <laughs> like I'm like no I want to slam my head into a wall like I work at a fucking yoga studio so like I get it like I get the fucking nightmare that is this reality and shout out to people who are trying to offer that for free mm-hmm. but like I like it's it is it is it's a nightmare it's a problem for work I do a little bit of like fundraising work with nonprofits, um supporting the things that they do and like the dark side of the data part of it is that the biggest demographic for fundraising walks tends to be like upper upper middle white women Um, And they're the people who typically will do like a walk for the cure, but aren't really interested in like Medicare for all or any kind of universal health care. And so I think part of understanding that phenomenon has to be recognizing the fact that as organizers, we're not giving people a lot of different ways that they can be involved that are meaningful. And I think I talked Mm. about this idea of voluntocracies where like in some organizing spaces, the people who have the most time that sit in the most meetings that are the most willing to lecture um, and things like reading groups tend to be the ones who like get pushed into leadership roles and are recognized. And I, I think that's a real shortcoming on the left is that we aren't great at finding a lot of different ways for people to get involved mm-hmm. yeah. and insisting that they all matter. Yeah, definitely. And even something like, you know, selling our own swag is kind of a step forward because if people want to buy Lululemon pants as like a fundraiser for something, we might as well be saying like, well, we know that we're doing good work, so we'd prefer that you support us. And I think and I think that's a valid way for people to engage, particularly women that are responsible for more of the childcare and household work and are still working and maybe don't have time to go to four meetings a week, but maybe they have time to buy a t-shirt and I think that's valid. Butts look good in Lululemon. I'm not saying that that's me, but... uh... (laughs) I'm sure okay. your butt looks good. I bet your butt looks really good. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we buy it on sale because we aspire to that, you know, that goal. Uh, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Hashtag asking for a friend. Um, so in, in this essay, I think that one thing that Frost does is she pushes back against this idea that feminism and economic oppression are sort of separate. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I, I think she addresses maybe an idea that um, we have these cultural categories of people um, that are these categories are used for exploitation, but really the power to exploit certain groups of people comes from economic power. Right. So Mm -hmm. you're not really in the position. And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier when we talked about like women and immigrants in the workplace. You're really only in the position to exploit a whole category of people if you have economic power. And and certainly as individuals, like as a white individual, I can capitalize on my um, privileged position or I can choose to try to do that less. But really, you have to have economic power to control women as a group. And I think also this ties to the Federici because Federici talked about how in a lot of feminist frameworks that she had seen, um, which I think we can relate to uh, neoliberal feminism, they sort of drew the line at, well, women are oppressed because they're not laborers in the market. So all they need to do is be included in the market and they will be able to compete with men. And that really doesn't get at the fact that they are exploited as a whole group of people and that uh, economics reinforce that exploitation. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that she mentioned where she was, you know, I guess a proponent of the concept of economism, which I didn't know before reading this piece. Um, I Googled it so that I could figure out how to explain it succinctly. And what Google told me was that uh, (laughs) economism is, the belief in the primacy of economic causes or factors, which basically just means that like economic factors should be considered first and foremost as like a cause or I don't know, like as a root issue and well in things in general, but in oppression in particular, which of course goes back to 
Caliban and the Witch, like, <laughs> when in Caliban and the Witch, they kind of, Sylvia Federici kind of maps the process by which capitalism was created through the subjugation of women and the naturalization of reproductive labor and how they didn't develop separately. Like, capitalism entirely relied from the very beginning on women's oppression. And so you can't, you know, you can't seek to address uh, women's issues without addressing economic issues. Absolutely. And she... She even brings that up with like the idea of universal health care mm-hmm. and universal child care. And I thought it was really interesting when she brought up that universal child care is a program that not only benefits children, um, particularly children in abused families mm-hmm. or in abusive familial situations, but it helps women to have more freedom with young children in their lives and possibly be able to leave um, toxic relationships, but also just generally have more agency over their lives. And another takeaway from this whole thing is just that Rosa Luxemburg is a fucking badass. <laughs> yes. At least I feel that way. <laughs> I guess we didn't really explain what the article is about. It's in the booklet Rosa Remix. And it's sort of about this charge that Rosa Luxemburg wasn't a very good feminist because she was a um, an economist. She says, Frost says of Luxemburg, some critics of Luxemburg have accused her of glossing over the question of women often arguing that she reduces women's oppression to economism, an amusing charge to make of an economist, and one I'm sure male economists are rarely faced with. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, While it's true she wasn't a social reformer, though she was incredibly supportive of Clara Zetkin's work with women, I would argue that not only did Luxembourg offer some very meaningful insights into feminist struggle, but that she addressed the very personal or private lives of women under capitalism through such an incisive economism. Boom. So fucking fire. Fire. Just (laughs) lovely. Sorry. That's my very nuanced critique, is that this was fire. (laughs) I do think that that quote is really um, pretty uh, descriptive of the rest of the article or I don't know the rest is basically analyzing it using those terms um, I know that Amber says at some point um, Luxembourg navigated her own marriage under the same standards bourgeois marriage was for her ultimately a means to citizenship though she was by no means anti-romance once saying if I feel by intuition that he doesn't love me anymore I will immediately fly away like a stricken bird Stricken certainly leaves room for pain and grieving, but the flight, Luxembourg knew that it was only an economic independence that allowed her to do so. Um, mm. Essentially showing that, you know, women do get trapped in certain situations for financial reasons. Um, yeah, totally. And that's like a privilege. It's an economic privilege to leave. Yeah. Like, and I've, I've met women before who, like, for whom the certainty of an abusive partner um, was more appealing than the uncertainty of like homelessness and destitution yes yeah I mean I've I've you know met women who were trying to leave their abusive husbands and had to like drive far away to the homeless shelter because of course like the police wouldn't you know place them in a shelter that was near their home and they didn't have the gas money to get there Mm-hmm. So, of course, like, economic factors are very, very important for the liberation of women in general, um, which we tend to gloss over or pretend is is untrue. Or even separate. Yeah. From, like, the oppression of women somehow. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that, that something that's interesting to me, interesting and, like, not like a hmm, but interesting and, like, a hmm kind of way is that I think that that as leftists fundamentally people who 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 think about things this way are interested in questions of power you know that's what it what it ultimately boils down to but the the issues of power that are implicit in you know problems like sexual assault or spousal abuse or any of those you know rape all of that those are those are pushed aside and while capitalism and economic exploitation is central to the exploitation of women overall, there are other factors that are psychologically damaging um, that go into the oppression of women that revolve around, you know, the power that is granted to men in this society. And Mm. in a lot of in a lot of circles, I think, unfortunately, those those issues of power are not taken seriously. 
or not they're not analyzed with the same um, same levels of interest and uh, authority, I guess, that that other axes of oppression are in leftist circles. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to note too, though, that this can be extended to a more intersectional Absolutely. framework, um, because obviously, you know, uh, people of color are affected by this as well. Um, and, you know, male yep. people of color in relationships, that can definitely be a dynamic that keeps people in harmful, abusive relationships. Uh, we see this with our trans allies. You see this like across the board. Yeah. So the issue of like economics and power and relationships, while it's important to consider, because it's been, it's happened to women for so long and it's been so codified. I think it's really important for us to recognize that it's, it's bigger than that. And it is intersectional. Absolutely. If you don't have a platform, um, it does take a lot of privilege to create one or a lot of luck. Um, I mean, we definitely lucked out in finding each other and, you know, building yeah. this together. Um, but if you do have a platform, it's really, really important to share it with people who aren't as privileged as you are, um, to go out of your way to find people who have voices that are frequently unheard and amplify them. And not just amplify them, not just repeat what they're saying, but give them a chance to speak for themselves. Um, so... I know we've been talking about this amongst ourselves, but we are very interested in having guests on the podcast, um, particularly, um, you know, women of color and, uh, you know, non-binary and trans women and um, just women with different experiences than we have had as, you know, predominantly white women on the show. That's my two cents. Yeah. Yeah. Email (laughs) us, contact us, tweet at us, get at us. Yeah. And... An aspect of this is we want to work collaboratively. Um, if people have ideas for themes on the show, if you know more marginalized types of women want to reach out to us about topics that they feel strongly about, like we are totally willing to do the creative work while mm-hmm. also taking cues from you. That's something we really want to explore, and we want to be critical yes. in the way that we do Absolutely. that. So I guess all of that being said... The way that you can contact us is, again, season <laughs> of the bee, all together, no spaces or underscores or anything, season of the bee at gmail.com. You can also find us at twitter.com slash season of the bee. Uh, anybody interested in sharing their own Twitter handles here? Yeah, uh, this is Lindsay. I actually, so I had my same Twitter account for like eight years and uh, I deleted it and created a brand new one uh, specifically for, you know, professional purposes, uh, podcast purposes. <laughs> so I need more followers. Professional podcast. Yeah, you know, I just uh, Follow don't want to get doxxed. I, I Do can it. scrub all the embarrassing high school tweets uh, from my old account. <laughs> anyway, so my new account is uh, at Groucho Marx, which is spelled like Groucho Marx with an extra H. Um, Groucho. Yep, grouch hoe marks. Don't call me a hoe. Only I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, who's next? (laughs) Mine is just Ambria Taylor. I guess there's another Ambria Taylor with an underscore in her name. Uh, She's a photographer in Indiana. (laughs) Don't follow her. She's great. She's boring. Follow me. I do want to also, we're going to also have other people share their Twitter handles if they want to, but I do want to talk about like the element of fear that we had in creating this podcast. I think, you know, of course all leftists feel like they are potentially under attack from people on the right wing, specifically like alt-right people who enjoy doxing and harassing people in real life as well. Um, But I think, you know, misogyny has a very particular fetishized kind of hate that I think we really do fear, and I'm, I'm trying not to fear it, but I mean, it, it, it does scare you. Um, you know, I, I had a professor at my school who uh, tweeted something about, um, about white people, <laughs> and uh, it ended up being like on Rush Limbaugh, and our school was just inundated, a, a very small school, with um, just calls and postcards and 
And I think the the hatred of women can be so much more sexualized, which is just like a very I'm creepy mixture of hate and too. desire. Yeah. That creepy mixture. Yeah. It's bad enough when it's just hate, but when it's mixed with with some this other strange thing, um, it becomes all the more terrifying. Yeah, there's a reason True I that. didn't tell anybody what state I live in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, my handle is Socialist Willow because Buffy the Vampire Slayer yes. is the best. <laughs> Real. All right, y'all can find me at Helen, H-E-L-L-E-N, uh, Kenniford, K-E-N-I-F-O-R-D, tweeting out really just generally stupid things. No, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, nope. we talked about, like, really serious shit, but, like, we are funny as fuck, so don't, like, let this shit fool you. <laughs> like, we will make you laugh and cry and feel good things. I will tweet about my period. Just be warned. I really only reactivated my Twitter to tweet about the show. Um, Same. My, my Twitter handle is, it's Spanish. It's La Mujer Voluble. Does anybody know what that means? I'd be really impressed. The loud lady. Uh, the woman something? Yeah, it means the fickle woman. Oh. Ooh, nice. the <laughs> Love it. Yep. And I did not scrub any of my embarrassing high school tweets. They're still there. <laughs> All right. So connect with us online if you're extremely online. And if you're just kind of online, do it anyway. Um, I do want to talk about going forward yes. what this podcast is going to be. So, of course, this episode was explicitly feminist. Um, but I think going forward, we're going to discuss any topics that interest us. Each episode has a theme. We see this as a space for uplifting leftist feminist voices, whatever they choose to speak about. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about rural organizing and the divide between the country and the city. Um, I think we're, we're really going to focus on having women guests on the podcast and interviewing them. But um, the feminist lens will sometimes be a lens and sometimes be the topic. And socialism. Yes. <laughs> of course. And socialism. Yeah. Okay. Love you all. Love you too. Oh, my gosh. I love you guys. Love so you. Much. Love you. <laughs> love bye. You. Bye. bye, guys. Love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, so we stop now or <laughs> yep. All right, so we press that's it. Stop. Yep.